Chesterton was the first person to bring to me the, the whole idea of the indissoluble union, the marriage of fides et ratio, of faith and reason. These things are inseparable. In fact, you know, that reason without faith becomes irrational and faith without reason becomes heretical. When I saw this, I thought, wow, I don't have to make that choice. I can be rational and can believe in God. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by a friend and author, publisher, speaker, Mr. Joseph Pierce. So welcome to the show. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks so much for being on our show. And uh, uh, Joseph Pierce was a one of the early faculty members at Ave Maria College and Ave Maria University, uh, served as a writer in residence for, I think, 11 years. So it's great to have you back uh, at the university. So I want to begin today looking at this great figure, um, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I think G.K. Chesterton is someone that many, you know, many of our listeners may be familiar with, they may know the name, uh, but but kind of like a, a little bit of a deeper penetration of his uh, really kind of his presence. And I think he's especially unique in his, con- that his conversion kind of like spawned so many other conversions, so many of the great figures that we know, uh, C.S. Lewis, Ronald Knox, and countless others were their own conversion to the faith was shaped by Chesterton's conversion. So maybe just in a, a, a brief answer, and then we'll talk about it more for the rest of our show. What do you think was so unique about Chesterton's life and his writings uh, that helped so many people be able to kind of encounter Christianity anew? Yeah, well, I suppose the way I might like to answer that is that you know, Chesterton under grace was the single most important um, influence on my own conversion. And wow. During my path to Christ, I came across this book, not by Chesterton. I've been reading Chesterton for some time, but I wasn't a Christian. And sort of, I loved Chesterton in spite of his Christianity, certainly not because of it. Yes. And then I came across a book on the shelf in London, uh, a secondhand bookshop in London, and it's by someone called C.S. Lewis. Now, I'd heard of C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. but I knew nothing about him except he'd written a children's book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I had no idea that that was a Christian work. I had no idea he was Christian. So mm-hmm. something prompted me, and you have to think it's you know the Holy Spirit, prompted me to just pluck this book from the shelf and take a look. And what I used to do in those days is, if it's an unknown author, go to the index for the name Chesterton. And if it's Chesterton was in there, I'd take a look. And if, if that interests me, then I'd buy the book. And I thought that's what I did this time until someone pointed out to me years later that that book by Lewis does not have an index, which makes it even more providential because I must have opened the book at random and I fell upon the magic word Chesterton. And it was Lewis's first description of reading, his 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 uh, first experience of reading Chesterton when he was in the trenches of World War One. So in the, in the British Army. And what Lewis said about Chesterton's impact on him exactly paralleled Chesterton's impact upon me. Uh, mm. And I was particularly taken by the fact that Lewis said, well, I, you know, I was an atheist. And you'd have thought that 
Chesterton would have been the least conducive of authors for, for someone sort of a hardened atheist like me. So I'm now looking at him, this is excellent. You know, this person's not a Christian, but he likes Chesterton. This is my kind of fellow, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's got me gripped. He says, you know, I couldn't help liking Chesterton's sense of humor, uh, the way that, that he employed humor. Um, and, and basically he said, I, it's like falling in love. That I found in Cheston the friend, even though I didn't agree with him. And then he said, Cheston had more common sense than all the moderns put together, except, of course, his Christianity. Right? So uh, I thought, yeah. this is brilliant. The, the, whoever the C.S. Lewis <laughs> person is, is even better than Cheston because he gets Cheston, but he's not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So I buy the book, right? By, by Lewis. It's my first ever book by C.S. Lewis. And it was C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which yeah. is, of course, Lewis's conversion story. So as I'm looking at the book, reading the book, I think he's going he's gonna to convert, isn't he? And so he does. But I couldn't, whereas I couldn't help liking Chesterton, I also couldn't help liking Lewis. Mm-hmm. So thanks to Chesterton, I was introduced to Lewis, and I started reading all of Lewis's books, and that was, put those two together as a dynamic duo, mm-hmm. and you're certainly on the path to Rome. And that's, so I have both of them to thank. But I have Chesterton yeah. to thank ultimately for Lewis as well. Yeah. So maybe when you were an atheist, what was it about Chesterton's writings that drew you to like want to keep reading him to, as, as you put it, to right to uh, to love him in spite of his Christianity? Well, there's something about Chesterton's personality. Mm-hmm. So when Lewis says it's like it's like falling in love, you, you, know, you discover a friend, you just want to be with him. There's something about Chesterton's writing style where you feel that he's present with you on a personal and personable mm-hmm. level and i loved the combination of humor and humility which which is which is a very sort of disarming combination but the other thing probably the most important thing of all that i learned from chesterton that led me to christianity was i was raised like most people of our, our generation you have to choose between faith or reason Right, mm, you can have yes. religion, in which case you got the comforts of you know sentimentality and religion, uh, or you can have reason, which means that you don't have those comforts, but at least you're not living the lie, right? So uh, I thought you had to choose, and then Chester was the first person to bring to me that the whole idea of the indissoluble union, the marriage of fides et ratio, of faith and reason, these things are inseparable. In fact, you know, that reason without faith becomes irrational and faith without reason becomes heretical. So, you know, when I saw this, I thought, wow, I don't have to make that choice. I can be rational and can believe in God. So that that was very, the most important thing for me with Chesterton, the sort of Aristotelian Thomistic approach to the faith that I didn't know was Aristotelian or Thomistic at the time. Yes, and one of the things that strikes me, because uh, you, you wrote a whole book, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, published by uh, Ignatius Press, I believe. Right? Yes. And so I think it was one of, was this one of your first major? It was, my, it was my first book, yeah. Your first book. And, you know, it, it's interesting in there, you discuss a lot about how Chesterton was a very well-known essayist, right? He, he wrote for newspapers. Uh, he was a controversialist. He became well-known even before, I think, he became a Christian. And then when he became a Christian, he was very well-known. Uh, it's kind of, by the way, I think it's, it's almost hard for us to imagine how famous Chesterton was during his lifetime, right? When he visited Europe, sometimes the sitting heads of states would welcome him in Spain and Poland. And even when he came to the United States, it was a huge deal. I think when he got an honorary doctorate at the University of Notre Dame, maybe like in the 30s, uh, it made national news. Yes. Right. Um, and, and huge audiences wherever he went. Uh, yeah. He was a, a he was a celebrity. No doubt about yeah. it. And, and 
and a celebrity who really eventually defends Christian orthodoxy and eventually even converts to right, the Church of Rome. And yet, you, you emphasize how much he had these, he, he maintained friendships with, with very prominent you know, atheists uh, of his day. I think probably Shaw might be a, you know, George Bernard Shaw was a particular one, or, and, and many others. Could you, what do you think it was about his particular, in many ways, a very kind of muscular, argumentative defense of Christianity that went hand in hand with this friendship with those with whom he disagreed, with atheists? Yeah, I think he's an absolute inspiration in that respect. And, and actually, it's, it's, there's, there's a motto I try to follow, which was from Chester's autobiography. Mm. And in his autobiography, Chester says of his relationship with his brother, Cecil, who tragically was killed in World War One, he said, we were always arguing, but we never quarreled. Mm. So this sort of distinction between an argument and a quarrel, but I mean, again, it's another one of these defining moments of my own conversion path. Of okay, there's a big difference because if you're arguing, you know, it's an act, it's an act of love with someone else to try to get at the truth. And the worst case scenario at the end of it is you know the other person better, even if you don't agree, right? So it's a win-win one way or the other. You're both yes. closer to an yes. understanding of important things at the end. Yes. Whereas a quarrel basically is you're falling out with people, you lack charity because you disagree. Right, and then the, the difference between the two are, you know, it, it's, I think it's the difference between heaven and hell. Quite frankly, that is the the, the, the distance is abysmal. It's an abyss. So you know, I try to practice that. I'm also, you know, I, a lot of my writing is apologetic for the faith, but you know, to try to do it with a, with with the spirit of charity. So clarity and charity, right? That try mm-hmm. try to keep those two things hand in hand. And Chesterton did that to an exemplary degree. Yeah, I think that Chesterton's writings often. You know, he really tries to enter into the mindset of both how kind of an how the atheistic perspective sees the world, how the Christian perspective sees the world, and then also this kind of like almost third thing, which is something like what he calls you know maybe common sense, right? That if we just reflect upon how human beings. Uh, right, he calls tradition the democracy of the dead. We give the strangest people votes all the preceding generations. So this kind of common wisdom of humanity. And uh, so maybe can you just say a little bit more about how he, how you see his writing is able to kind of, um, you know, I don't know, imaginatively enter into these various like ways of looking at the world. Yeah, well, first, first of all, if you, we talk about clarity and charity being combined, but you know, love is disarming. So, in my own mm. conversion story, from my, my, I wrote a book on my own conversion. That one of the key ingredients were moments when my enemies, instead of showing me the hatred and animosity I expected, because that was the feelings I had towards them, uh, they showed me love in response, which is very disarming. Yes, yes. And so Chesterton shows this clarity always with charity, which means that you know. So, for instance, H.G. Wells, uh, you know that. Chesterton engaged with H.G. Wells, uh, and whereas Belloc also engaged with H.G. Wells, and H.G. Wells' understanding of history from a, say, deterministic perspective, 
Belloc and, and H.G. Wells became enemies, right? They they snubbed each other in public when they when they met, and and they they, they basically became enemies. Belloc's bellicosity versus Chesterton's, Chesterton's charity. Chesterton wrote a book in response, "The Everlasting Man," um, and you know that he he begins by praising Wells, he ends by praising Wells, and, and although they obviously disagreed, and there's no doubt about that, H.G. Wells said, who basically died a sort of uh, disgruntled, uh, cynical, disillusioned atheist. Uh, he said, if I get to heaven, it will be because of the prayers of my friend G.K. Chesterton. I mean, you know, it speaks for itself. Yes. Wow. That's really, that's, that's really uh, amazing. And boy, that's, I think, a great, I mean, how, how important for our age today right. uh, to be able to, uh, you know, engage in thoughtful, rigorous debate and conversation uh, without falling into, I don't, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, camps, yeah. uh, you know, or, or, or this, this kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, almost like tribalism, like, hey, this is my team and you're not on my team, so I don't like you. No, it, th- th- this idea that uh, Chesterton was able to, I don't know how, but somehow he's, he's able to like describe the errors that he sees in other people. And it's almost partly because I think he himself was there. Oh, yes. uh, and maybe you could say a little bit about that because I'm, you know, one of the things that he really tended to see and describe in his youth uh, and in his own, you know, coming of age, uh, in his own studies, his own writing and, uh, you know, reading uh, was like this strong, really despair uh, that life was ultimately meaningless. It was without God, without purpose. It was you know, should we even be, it's kind of like he goes back to act three of Hamlet when Hamlet says, right, to be or not to be, that is the question. And I think, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about this, but, you know, Chesterton was not always the one who thought life was a gift. Uh, You know, and he, he really struggled with the sense of despair, anxiety, pessimism of his age. And that was a personal struggle for him. Yes, which is why, for instance, you know, he 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 became famous in 1900 as a very popular journalist. He his Christianity is implicit, really, from the beginning, but implicit. And it becomes explicit with his book Orthodoxy in 1908, which is a defence for Orthodox Christian Orthodoxy. Um, some people were surprised, but they shouldn't have been because it was there in his other writers implicitly. But what the Orthodoxy is, it is a defence for the for the Catholic faith from the perspective of reason, but it's also very personal. It's actually his own conversion journey, his own conversion story. And there's a lot in it about the fact that when he was in his uh, late teens and early 20s, when he was studying at the University of London, Slade School of Art, an art school, um, that he fell under the influence, first of all, sort of uh, artistically, aesthetically of the esthetes, of the decadence of Oscar Wilde and, and those people. He he says in his autobiography, and we have no reason to disbelieve him, that he, he never indulged in the vices of, of, of Oscar Wilde and the decadence. But he certainly he imbibed the atmosphere uh, of the aesthetic. And in fact, his early novel, which wasn't published until fairly recently, uh, posthumously, was is, is just like a sort of a pastiche of the picture of Dorian Gray. So we can see that mm-hmm. aesthetic influence. And then uh, philosophically, he, he imbibed people such as Nietzsche and, and more particularly Schopenhauer with this primal pessimism that is ultimately nothing but mind, you know, even matter 
we we don't know that even matter exists. We only know that mind exists and, and our mind, and we don't even know what that is. Mm. So there's this mm. prim, primal negation of reality. And so Chesterton, you know, reached that to be or not to be moment you talk about. Yeah. Um, and uh, he just decided, uh, you know, that well, if even existence is good, even if it's meaningless, it's good. Mm. And he says that I held on to sanity with with one thin thread of thanks. So this sense wow. of gratitude for the mm-hmm. fact that he existed and then fa- gratitude for everything he saw in existence, even if they were phantasmagora, right? Even if they were phantasms, mm-hmm. right? That they, they were beautiful phantasms, right? And, and yeah. if it's just a fantasy, it's a beautiful fantasy. So he began that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, eventually he discovers the ratio as well, the reason that, that led him away from, from that subjectivism. Yes, and that's also why I find, you know, in many ways, he's a strangely contemporary figure, you know, born almost, what, 150 years ago. And yet the period in England at his, uh, when he was studying, was uh, kind of a collapsing Christian culture and civilization in which it had been 100 years or so more er- earlier, it had been a more kind of profoundly uh, or at least more broadly Christian assumptions that were, uh, you know, informing things. And, uh, but by the time he is, it's like that has all been kind of wiped away at the university level, at the level of, maybe we would call them the elites that, that control, kind of guide culture and these sorts of things. And so in many ways, I find we're in a kind of similar situation today. People, you know, we're, it, it's a post-Christian society. It's a society that's bent on rejecting its faith. And therefore, many of the young people like Chesterton in his age grow up. And I think I had this even, you know, as, as a young person with a deep sense that I'm not clear that it's good to be. Uh, almost with this tendency that we're, we're almost mad at God for creating the world. You know, we're mad at God for creating us. We don't really think that the world is worth going on. Uh, this seems to be somehow kind of percolating into, I don't know, in, into the air we breathe, the water we drink. And I think it's partly why you have, I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's unrelated to, of course, the skyrocketing rates of, right, of you know, depression, anxiety, uh, hopelessness, anger, resentments, all these different things that seem to be kind of flourishing you know, in our culture today. So, so the way you describe it, it seems that there, there was a time when before in a way Chesterton came to say faith in Jesus Christ, he first came to faith in existence. And he said, right, it's good that I am right. I think in, in one, in orthodoxy he says, right. It's something like, um, you know, it's not so much that we need to have a a human being or, you know, man developing wings, this mere fact that he has legs is awesome. And we ought to be excited about reality. So could you just say a little bit, I I feel like that point is really, and maybe I feel like that's partly why he's so effective as a whisperer almost of like to con people that are not even at the moment open to conversion. They're not really thinking about Jesus Christ. They're not thinking about, they're really thinking about is, is life worth living at all? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, there's some of Chester's most charming lyrics. They're not great poetry, but they're charming lyrics with great aphoristic wisdom. Yeah. Uh, were written, you know, when he was in his youth, when he was coming out of this period of pessimism and yeah. subjectivism and, and just being grateful uh, for, for 
life or existence. Yeah. And there's a wonderful short aphoristic lyric from that time, and if I can get it right, give me miraculous eyes to see my eyes, those terrible crystals made alive in me, more miraculous than all the things they see. Wow. Yeah, that sort of sums it up. That, you know, yeah. I, I should need to be able to see at a primal level the, the miracle, first of all, that, that I am. <laughs> and then the fact yeah. that through this miracle, I can see other miracles. Yes, there's a, a Catholic physicist who's uh, Stephen Barr, who's done a lot of writing on kind of showing how faith and science are not only compatible, they, 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 they need one another. Science needs uh, faith, needs a kind of conviction that the world is fundamentally intelligible and that we can come to know it. But he says one time he describes kind of like uh, a lot of the somewhat atheistic atmosphere among modern scientists. He describes this, he says, we're so good at seeing what is in front of our eyes because we never see what's behind our eyes. Right. And uh, now maybe I realize that he got that from Chesterton, right? <laughs> that, that can I see the miracle, the, like, right, the miracle of my own seeing, my own eyes, not only my ability to see visually, but my ability to see another person, to see a truth, right? The moment we see that, we see something in a way, right, that can't be reduced to materialism. It can't be reduced to mere kind of accidental um, evolutionary kind of determinism. There's a there's an act of seeing, an act of knowing, an act of loving uh, that I think is just, it's just, anyway, it's really powerful to see. Uh, I want to take a break and then I want to come back and I want to go through a little bit of some of just maybe, you know, a few highlights uh, from some of uh, Chesterton's great books uh, that I think would be of interest to our, you know, listeners and viewers. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. So welcome back, and why don't you Tell us a little bit about which books or writings maybe were most impactful for you from Chesterton, and maybe at the same time, which ones do you find kind of most helpful when you teach? Uh, which ones might you, you know, would be maybe, you know, that listeners might want to pick up and, and try to read? Okay, uh, plenty to answer there, so I'll probably let you interject at some point. Sure, yeah. Um, but with, for me, actually, the first book of Chesterton's I read was not a book that most people know about, uh, but it's a wonderful book, a late book of his. So, you know, I wasn't interested in religion, as, mm -hmm. as you said already, and nothing yeah. would have enticed me to read a, a Christian book, and still less a Catholic book. I was raised to be very anti-Catholic. Mm -hmm. I was actually a member of an anti-Catholic secret society, so mm -hmm. I would never read a Catholic book, but I was interested in politics and economics. Okay, yeah. And some said, well, you do need to check out Chesterton's political and economic ideas, right? Okay. So, and they said there was one essay in a particular book I should read. Um, and uh, I said, well, sure. And what's the book called? The Well and the Shallows. It was the name of the book. Uh, and the essay, which was called Reflections on a Rotten Apple, was about uh, two-thirds of the way through the book. So I thought, with this fellow Chesterton's worth reading, I'll start from page one. Okay. And the rest of that book is a collection of essays by Chesterton in defense of the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. 
the well and the shallows. So the well is the Catholic Church, has profundity, life-giving water, and the shallows is everything else, right? That was the approach of the book. And of course, I didn't agree with everything, but as with C.S. Lewis, I had the same uh, impact upon me that that Chesterton had on Lewis. I couldn't help liking him, wanted to read more. So that was the beginning Mm -hmm. of my past. So I have a, that was published in 1935, only a year before Chesterton's death. So it was a late Uh. book. Uh, and uh, so that I have a soft spot for that particular mm-hmm. book. But uh, as regards Chesterton's greatest books, uh, you know, it, people would normally say uh, Orthodoxy and The Everlasting Man, perhaps his book on Thomas Aquinas, uh, perhaps his book on St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, you know, I'm a literature person, so I, I like his novels. I think his poetry is uneven. There are some good ones. Lepanto is a tour de force, yeah. and, and several of, of other of Chesterton's poems are wonderful. But for me, The Man Who Is Thursday uh, is, is a perennially brilliant novel that every time I go back and reread it and every time I reteach it, it's just hitting me as being fresh. Could you, could you say more about The Man Who Was Thursday? Because I, I, I've heard from a number of uh, people that have tried to pick it up. And, and I think, I don't know, but maybe 20 years ago, I picked it up. And I remember for the first time, just, I don't know, I think I got 50 pages in and just stopped reading. It was just like it, because it's, it's just say a little bit more. What what should people know before trying to read? You know, the man who was Thursday. Well, I'm glad you said that actually, because there are certain works of literature that are really profound that are difficult to get if you read them unassisted by yourself. So yes. what, I, what I call recreational reading rather than guided reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so like other examples would be The Wasteland by yeah. T. S. Eliot or, or The Wreck of the Deutschland by Gerard Manny Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Now these are difficult poems that if you try to read them unassisted the first time, you're probably going to be perplexed or even apoplexed right? <laughs> uh, annoyed so Chet, the man who says is the same and the first time I read it I thought wow that I enjoyed that but I'm not sure why and I have no idea what it was about <laughs> um, yeah. and then you go back and you read and reread and, and, and you come to it so uh, I would say that it's it's a dangerous book to read in the sense that you might find yourself wondering what on earth is about and put it down and mm-hmm. the, the experience you had is not that unusual Yeah. but I would ask people to persevere maybe under guidance maybe find someone that, that's written about it or, or has taught it that you can you can be guided through I better still in a class situation yeah but in a nutshell if we can do that it's it's it was written the same year as orthodoxy okay and that's important because it's also really a conversion story he's really saying uh the same sort of thing he's saying in orthodoxy but he's doing it in the in the form of a detective story okay and set the you know the, the 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 question is who is sunday so the you know the thursday is one of this the secret anarchist council where they all have code names so they don't use their real name they use a day of the week and sunday is the president of this anarchist council and, and the question is who is he mm-hmm. um and it's the, the the other six detectives are trying to find out who he is are called the six philosophers there's actually a, a chapter in the the novel called the six philosophers and they all approach who sunday is from different philosophical perceptions and angles mm-hmm. and the chestnut's a brilliant storyteller uh, because he, he, if you treat it as a detective story as a mystery yes. right except you're not looking for a criminal you're looking perhaps for the criminal for, for satan himself the diabolical sunday is the diabolical and you know he does these wonderful things he gives sunday throws out clues to each mm-hmm. of them and you're saying oh and the first clue seems to make sense and so now he's got you hooked Right, yeah, and you look at the, all these clues, and then the the, the the penultimate and ultimate clue makes it clear these were all red herrings. All of the all of the mm-hmm. tricks of the of the, st- the storyteller, but in the midst of the story, in the midst of the story, in one page, he gives three specific clues 
that um, uh, of who Sunday is. And the three specific clues are omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. And every reader misses it. I mean, this mm. is a brilliant detective story because he's showing you the answer in front of your face mm -hmm. and does it in such a way, like a sleight of hand, like a conjurer's trick. Yeah. You don't actually pick it up. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you know, we discover, I mean, it's a spoiler, so, so switch off yes. if you don't want to be spoiled. We discover that Sunday's not the devil, but it's actually the peace of God. He declares himself to be the peace of God. Oh. And then the accuser, mm -hmm. the real anarchist, right, um, says, I cannot accept the peace of God when there's all this suffering going on, you know. Yes. Um, and then someone said, have you ever suffered? Uh, and uh, the final words of Sunday before he sort of disappears is, can you drink of the cup that I drank of? Wow. So at the end, end of the novel is basically Sunday is revealed as God. So the whole thing mm -hmm. metaphorically or parabolically is the quest for truth, the quest for God, the quest for meaning, and it all begins with this this radical pessimism, the Schopenhauer, you know, everything's meaningless, right? Yeah. Everything, that's, nothing makes any sense. And then the, the whole chase after Sunday, and he does lead them on a wild goose chase as if, you know, God is a loving father who plays hide and seek, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to want to find him in order to do mm -hmm. so. But if you do want to find yeah, him, yeah. you're given help. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah. Those who so. seek me will find me. Exactly. Ask, ask, and it shall be given. Knock, and the door shall be opened. Uh, that's really, it, it's amazing, too, because I think Chesterton, again, having this inside experience of modern philosophies and you know, postmodern philosophies, saw that in many ways it was that fundamental rejection, maybe first of God, because there is suffering, there can't be a God. And then secondly, because there is suffering, existence is not worth it. Exactly. You know, and, and, and if God does exist, which he doesn't, we don't like him. Yes, <laughs> so yes. Yeah, the hatred of a God you, you say doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, yeah. and I think in part that is, uh, like, I mean, that is the fundamental, like, rebellious creaturely attitude that's encapsulated in uh, Satan. It's encapsulated in, uh, we could see it in Cain, Right. Um, I'm not willing to maybe, you know, do the work that Abel did to have my sacrifice accepted. So I'm going to kill Abel. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm going to rather than change to become harmonious with God or to recognize that I can't and let God change me, I'm going to try to kill God. Right. right? And, and in some ways, right, it's that state of rebellion. And so it's that really is a beautiful way of putting it. So in some ways, then the man of Thursday is kind of like taking all those modern postmodern philosophies and then showing in their strange way, right? Christ actually is the answer. Yes. He says, right, it, life is worth living with suffering because one of the things he develops is that we're all in a way suffering. Yes. Which means it's not like we're fundamentally saying that our lives aren't worth living. Right. Right. Which is a, and I think it's almost, it's like, again, it's this kind of truism that we almost take for granted now. Um, I was uh, reading somewhere where they were talking about like the new Malthusians who are worried about overpopulation, not for overpopulation's sake, which has already in some ways been shown to be false because human beings actually don't, you know, like we, we have the capacity to sustain enough resources minus our uh, fights and wars and everything. But that simply, I don't want to bring people into a world like ours. Right. right again, which in some ways is saying my life is not worth living, and so I think you know that's that's beautiful. You you uh, you you describe it that way. 
the man who was Thursday, who I guess needs to, we need to discover Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Um, we need to discover Sunday. And also Sunday at one point, he t- turns on these people. And some of them represent, you know, uh, nihilistic philosophy. Okay. Some, some blithe optimism. But he, he, he t- Sunday says to them, you are all well-intentioned idiots. <laughs> uh, so in other words, philosophy. And he says that you will discover the secret of the smallest atom and the furthest star before you before you discover me, understand me. In other mm. words, that what he is beyond human reason's grasping. Human reason will lead us to, to an existence of him. And there's another wonderful twist in the novel. We can only go so far. Reason can only take us so far. At some point, if we want to go further, God has to reveal himself to us. Mm-hmm. God has to show himself to us. Yeah. That's moving towards the end of the novel. Revelation yeah. is necessary if you're going to go deeper into reason. Yeah, so first, that idea that existence itself is good and then secondly, that existence also, though, is bad. Yeah. It, it, existence is at the same time right, wounded and broken. So we need kind of a declaration. And it's so funny, right? What we get in Genesis 1, what do we get? God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and it was good. Yeah. It was good. It was good. It was very good. So right, thousands of years ago, we needed to be told creation is good. And today we need to be told it is good. And then we have the new creation in Jesus Christ, right? That, that is that, that son of the peace of God, who is not just, um, is not just like a cosmic principle, but is a cosmic person, right? Right. Who goes through our suffering and somehow says it is good. Yeah. Right. So it says we can go through our suffering and our sin and attain uh, goodness. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And again, it, 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 the man of Thursday, it's it's so deep mm-hmm. because the other revelation is that these six detectives are set out to look for the villain, discover who the villain Sunday is yes. by this invisible chief of police mm. who they never see because always, they always meet in a dark room, so they never mm-hmm. never see him. And so the, the, it's revealed that actually he's the same person as Sunday. Okay. So in other words, that the God who in the dark, who prompts us to look mm-hmm. for him, uh, is the same God who's prompting us and to, to find him. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so it's, 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 uh, so the desire for truth is something God puts mm-hmm. in us. The, the suffering is something which is a red herring, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And we have to come to God through it, but it's not the meaning of existence. But then obviously at the end with the divine revelation, can you drink of the cup that God shows us ultimately yeah. how we defeat suffering by suffering himself and the victory over it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a that's such a such powerful story. I uh, hope people will uh, pick it up and uh, and uh, you know give it give give it a chance. Uh, also, so in his other two famous works, say Orthodoxy and Everlasting Man. Uh, he he begins, I think, both of them uh, telling kind of imaginative stories. I think at the beginning of Orthodoxy, he describes, you know, imagine you leave uh, England and want to go discover an island. And you end up missing the island, so you sail around the world and you come back to England. But rather than saying that you, you know, just came back to England, you go ahead and you think you discovered it. And you keep discovering it. And then the more you keep discovering this new island, you start realizing it looks a lot like the old England. And in the beginning of the Everlasting Man, he often he tells the story in a way that we are, if you want to think about Christianity, don't think about it as Christianity. Instead, 
don't think of the 12 apostles as kind of Middle Eastern or European. Think of them as Asian, right? If you think of them as this weird Near East, like this weird Eastern philosophy or weird Eastern religion, you might actually listen to it. Right. And so in both of these images, he says, we're so familiar with Christianity that we don't take it seriously. Yep. And we don't even know what it is. We think we know what it is, so we don't recognize it. And so he, in both of these books, seems to kind of go around the world, and he comes back to Christianity as if he's seeing it for the first time and helps his readers kind of see Christianity uh, in its complexity and in its simplicity, uh, like anew. Yeah, fresh. I mean, it, again, it's, it's going back to what we said about give me uh, eyes to see my eyes. Mm-hmm. You know? or, or the other thing with Cheston, we need to stand on our heads in order mm. to see something for the first time because we've got so used to seeing it, we're not seeing it at all. Yeah. And it's like a sunrise. You know, it's a, and no two sunrises are, uni- are, are the same. Everyone's a, a unique work of art, but do we see it that way? We don't normally see it at all, yeah. right? Because we don't bother to look. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chestnut sort of shows us that, that, that we need to stand on our heads to see something f- fresh for the first time. So going around mm-hmm. the world, coming back and seeing your home as if it's a strange place, all right? Yeah. Um, but th- then sometimes you stand on your head and you realize to your astonishment that you're actually standing the right way up and the whole of your life prior to this you've been standing on your head thinking it was the right way up Mm -hmm. which is in a very paradoxical way of understanding conversion yeah no because you've taken all sorts of things for granted in your ignorance that you Mm -hmm. thought this was the right way things are um, and then you discover actually by because you make a point of seeing it from the opposite perspective that hang on for a second I've seen it wrong the whole time. There's a wonderful line in, in Evening War about conversion. Evening War says conversion is like stepping across the chimney piece from a looking glass world uh, where everything is an absurd caricature into the real world that God made and thence begins the delicious prospect of discovering it all anew. So again, very mm. Chestertonian understanding of, yeah. of conversion from, by Evening War there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Almost it's, it's not so much putting on glasses that help us to see it's taking off glasses that have somewhat distorted reality, right? You know, through our own ego and through in a way, right? The, the egos and the distorted egos of our cultures, right? And, and surroundings. The the, the lens of prize distorts our vision basically to use use your metaphor. That's right. Could you, so you, you, you call your book wisdom and innocence. Why are these two words particularly associated with G.K. Chesterton? Well, I, I, I took the idea from two volumes of Chesterton's Father Brown stories. Father Brown, you know, Father Brown's probably, in terms of pure sales, is probably his most popular works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are a series of detective stories? Yeah, basically yeah. what he's doing, Father Brown in some sense is a response to Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. You know, Sherlock Holmes is very much a sort of uh, empirically empiricist who looks for the material evidence. Mm-hmm. So everything is solved by physical evidence. Whereas mm-hmm. um, Father Brown looks at the metaphysical. You know, the, wh- wh- Why did the criminal do it? Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you understand pride and sin you understand motive you understand motive you can find the the mm-hmm. the, 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 the culprit so uh so it was a repost but the first volume of father brown stories is called the innocence of father brown okay and a subsequent volume is called the wisdom of father brown mm-hmm. and i was uh enamored of the paradox because in a, in our worldly cynical way of seeing things you have to choose 
right, between innocence and wisdom. Innocence mm. is, is mm-hmm. synonymous with naivete, right? Uh, and oh, you have to get rid of your naivete in order to become wise. Whereas in actual fact, it, the innocence is just the absence of guilt, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Is actually you know, b- being mm-hmm. able to see with the childlike simplicity that's necessary to get to heaven. So, fa- so Father Brown actually knows more than the criminals because he's innocent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- his wisdom is connected inexorably to his innocence. And it certainly is true that if we gain worldly experience, you know, we become addicted to sinful practices, to mm-hmm. sexual activity or to drugs or alcohol, whatever, then we are, we are actually not seeing things clearly any longer. We are a slave mm-hmm to uh, our own habits we are slave to our appetites we're not able to see the world as it is we're seeing the world as we've poisoned it as we've intoxicated it so there is a connection between innocence and wisdom and what is true of father brown is very true of chesterton which is why i chose the title for the book wow that's uh really amazing and of course you reminds me of that uh that idea from right jesus himself says right go out and be innocent as doves but as cunning as serpents so right we be more innocent so that you can become wiser because you can understand you know others uh i think c.s lewis has a a description where he says that goodness can understand evil in a way that evil can't understand goodness because the man who is awake can understand both being awake and being asleep but the man who is asleep understands neither yeah uh so there's a famous line um in chesterton's uh, autobiography Right, he has this conversion to Christianity to orthodoxy, maybe in 1905 or so. He's uh, he writes his famous book Orthodoxy in 1908, but he's not received into the Catholic Church until 1922. And I want to ask you two questions about that. Uh, one, we'll, we'll get to in a minute, but is that it happens after a visit to the Holy Land? I just wanted to see whether or not you had any connections to that. But but before we get to that. He says this, people ask me, or when people ask me, or indeed anybody else, why did you join the Church of Rome? Right, remember, this is in Angl- this is in English where the Church of England is the, right, I mean, Catholicism is still very suspect uh, at this time in England. The first essential answer, if partly an elliptical answer, is to get rid of my sins. For there is no other religious system that really does profess to get rid of people's sins. It is confirmed by the logic, which seems to many startling, by which the church deduces that sin confessed and adequately repented is actually abolished. The sinner does really begin again as if he had never sinned. Right, he goes on a little bit farther. Uh, He says, when a Catholic comes from confession, he does truly, by definition, step out again into that dawn of his own beginning and look with new eyes across the world to a crystal palace that is really of crystal. He believes that in that dim corner, in that brief ritual, God has really remade him in his own image. He is now a new experiment of the creator. He is as much a new experiment as when he was really only five years old. He stands, as I said, in the white light at the worthy beginning of the life of man. The accumulations of time can no longer terrify. He may be gray and gouty, but he is only five minutes old. Right? So this, uh, why did you join the Church of Rome? To get rid of my sins. And again, we just, so, to continue for our discussion just then, you know, the wisdom of contrition and confession leads to the innocence of forgiveness. Right. Yes. Yeah. So could you just maybe say a little bit more about that, about like his, his final conversion to Rome? 
Yeah, well, first of all, to, to mention the, the trip to the Holy Land, that uh, that obviously he read a book on the New Jerusalem. It had a profound impact upon him. Yeah. But I don't think that was the defining moment. Chesterton was a Catholic, effectively, essentially, in 1908 when he wrote Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. But he loved his wife, Frances, dearly. Oh, and Frances mm-hmm. Chesterton was a very comfortable Anglican, mm-hmm. quite happy to stay there. And Chesterton was not willing to, do, to make that momentous step without her. Mm-hmm. So he waited and waited and waited. And in the end, it was the only thing he did without her. He came uh, into the yeah. church without her, and then she came in a couple of years later and, and was mm-hmm. a very good Catholic thereafter. So the delay was ultimately through his love love for his wife. You know, mm-hmm. this this momentous thing, we have to do this together yeah. as one flesh. We can't do it separately. Yeah. But in the end, his conscience wouldn't let him delay mm-hmm. any longer, and he had to do yeah. it without her. Yeah, and, and I think you can even see his description there of to get rid of my sins. Yeah. Um, what is it that in so many ways people are looking for and longing for as a way to get rid of shame and guilt, right? Uh, and and here you have something, and really perhaps the only thing that claims that your sins can be abolished. Yeah. Can you imagine, though, right, uh, Chesterton knowing that Yes, for 14 years, uh-huh. uh, and knowing that many other people, such as Ronald Knox and other mm-hmm. Morris Baring and others have been brought to the faith, through his writings, and yet he's not taken the step himself. Mm-hmm. He must have become increasingly aware of the anomalous nature of his situation, of his standing, mm-hmm. and the fact this was probably becoming sinful. Mm-hmm. That not only yeah. you know was he not having his sins forgiven, he was actually you know, heaping sins upon his own head in the fact he was not doing what his conscience was demanding of him yeah. right by this stage. Yeah, and maybe in that way too, you can see even in another way in which Chesterton becomes so relatable that this towering intellect, this towering imagination, towering writer, and still it takes some time. Yeah, it time takes time. I yeah. uh, you know we to really summon up right all the courage to make that leap. Yeah, uh, you know wasn't 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 easy for him, and so you know, for for those who are interested or growing in their faith. Again, time takes time, and yeah. Chesterton's a great example of that. Well, I mean, that. we are arguably one of the great, well, not arguably, one of the greatest intellects ever was St. Augustine, and he took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And it's also interesting, if you go back to Augustine, uh, he'd become a catechumen earlier, and then even a couple of years before his final conversion, he started basically becoming a catechumen again under Ambrose. But it was still like a couple of years before he has a scene in the garden. So... Uh, Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I want to close with uh, three questions and uh, partly so our listeners can get to know you a little better. Uh, So what's a a book you've been reading lately? Book I've been reading lately. I've just finished reading actually um, Father Elijah by Michael D. O'Brien that okay. I read about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I want, I'm running a series for Crisis Magazine called uh, Great Literature in a Nutshell. Oh yeah. And I wanted to include this and I thought, well, I haven't read it for so long. I better go back mm-hmm. and read it again. So I read that yeah. again and thoroughly enjoyed it. So that's the most yeah. recent book I've been reading recreationally. Yeah. yeah. And uh, maybe uh, uh, just an extra question for you. Uh, what's, what's a book you've been writing lately? Well, I recently finished a, a book, it's a history of Christendom. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be published by Ignatius Press. And I, the title I've given to it is The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful uh, 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 History of Christendom in Three Dimensions. Okay. Well, that's uh, wonderful. And when will that be coming out? Well, probably not till the autumn at the earliest, I think. Okay. So yeah. maybe later this year, but thank you. And what's a practice you do on a daily basis to help you find meaning and purpose in your life? 
Well, I tr- I, for, for years, since about the time of my conversion, I try to live what I call a healthy trinity. So mm-hmm. I try to find time every day for spiritual fitness, yeah. uh, physical fitness, mm-hmm. and intellectual fitness. Mm. So intellectual fitness takes care of itself with just what I'm doing. So it's really a question of finding enough time each day for the spiritual and physical fitness, so for prayer, spiritual reading, uh, and also the gym or some other form of physical exercise. That's great. And uh, last question, what's a falsehood that you believed about God? Um, and you know, how did it, how did it hurt you? And what was the truth you discovered through theology? Wow. That's great. Um, uh, nothing like hitting me with a curveball to finish with uh, <laughs> Michael. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that with me, I, 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 God was, God was inexplicable. Mm. Uh, the Christian God was distant and it took reason, uh, and, charity of people like Chesterton to open my eyes to who he was. So I don't know. I think that once I started to take God seriously, mm-hmm. you know, first Chesterton, Lewis, Aristotle, Aquinas, you know, it was just like a, an opening out of a flower into the fullness of God's presence. Before that, you know, I, he wasn't important enough for me to, to care whether he was mm-hmm. true or false. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was this person who didn't matter mm-hmm. um, uh, whether he existed or not to this person that just was revealed to me bit by bit by bit through reading these great minds that we've been talking about. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for being on the show. And again, for listeners who might be interested, uh, your book on Chesterton is called Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton uh, by Joseph Pierce, published by Ignatius Press. Great. And thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.